Hear the word of the Lord to us from Haggai 1, 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Good morning. Hope you had an excellent fourth. I was talking a while back with a friend of mine. I'll call him Donald, not his real name. But he was sharing with me. He said, I'm just kind of spiritually dry right now. I'm unmotivated in my life. I've, you know, I've worked really hard to get where I am in my life at this point in my life. And yet... I just feel kind of empty. If you and I take an honest look at our lives, are we really satisfied with where we are in life? Are you really content? Are you fulfilled deep down? I find that many Christians I talk to, men, women, young adults looking for work, people starting a new job, Parents, newly married, those with years into their jobs or their homes, older retired folk. And I often hear this same kind of refrain, who in their rare moments of reflection are asking, is this all there is? Is this what I've worked so hard for? They're feeling a deep dissatisfaction with their lives when they take the time to look. Well, in 520 B.C., 
over 2,500 years ago, the people of Israel were feeling much that same way. They were experiencing some of those same feelings. They were struggling. They were dissatisfied with where they were in life. And the period, the culture that they were experiencing was a lot like ours. There was economic difficulty. They didn't know what was ahead financially. There were a lot of uncertainties. They were living in an environment that was hostile to their faith more and more over time. So they were struggling with feeling out of place. They were feeling that oppression, much like our post-Christian age in which we live. They were feeling, because of all that, they were feeling vulnerable and afraid, afraid of what might be coming, afraid of what the future might hold. And so, like many of us, that fear led them to focus on themselves. Wow, I don't know what's ahead, so I better take care of myself. I better make sure my needs are met. And so in that situation, God came and spoke into their lives through this prophet Haggai, just like he speaks into our lives today. <laughs> At least 24 times in this little book, it's only two little chapters of Haggai, but at least 24 times. It says, the word of the Lord came. God said, God declares, God speaks directly into their lives. And God is speaking to Israel through this book, and he's also speaking to you and to me as well. And his main message, and I want you to hear this real clear because we're going to come back to it, his main message is, I love you too much to let you be satisfied with anything less than myself. That's the main message of Haggai. I love you too much to let you become satisfied with anything less than myself. So as God speaks that message to us this morning through the book of Haggai, the question for all of us is, how will we respond to that message? Pray with me. Lord, it's amazing we can go to a book that was written 2,500 years ago and have it speak so directly into our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would speak by your Spirit into our hearts this morning. That you'd speak into our lives and help us redirect our paths to be more in line with you, that we might truly find our satisfaction in you rather than anything else. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Haggai, if you haven't found it yet, <laughs> it's the third from the last book in the Old Testament. So go to Matthew, the beginning of Matthew, take a left, go three blocks, <laughs> and you should come to Haggai. It's a tiny little book. Malachi, Zechariah, and then Haggai as you're going backwards into the Old Testament. It was a tough time in Israel's history. Let me set the stage for you. Isaiah, another of the prophets, has, had prophesied to Israel and they'd said, because of your rebellion against me, because you've turned away from God and sought life somewhere else, then the Babylonians are going to come and take you into exile. They're going to destroy the nation of Israel. And that prophecy came over many years, but the people still did not turn. And in 
five over a period of time, but especially finally in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in and wiped out the nation of Israel. Now they felt like, hey, we're safe. God won't allow his temple be, to be destroyed. But in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in and completely destroyed the temple, tore it down, ripped it apart, burned everything that they could, completely destroyed that temple. The people were devastated. Those who survived, which weren't all that many, were taken into exile in Babylon, many, many miles away, over 500 miles away. And there they suffered under oppression for a number of years. But God had promised that he would bring them back to the land. <laughs> and an amazing thing happened. This huge empire of Babylon, the most powerful nation in the world at the time, was under attack by the Persians. But they lived in the city of Babylon, which was impenetrable. But God gave King Cyrus of Persia some wisdom, and he diverted the Euphrates River. And his entire army walked into the city on the dry riverbed under the city walls, took the Babylonian nation and began to reign. And Cyrus was much different than the Babylonians. He said, you know what? I want you people, you Jews and other nations, but in particular the Jews, he said, I want the support of your God. So you, whoever wants to, the remnant that's left, can go back to the land. And so in 536 B.C., he said, go back to the land. And in 536 B.C., over 40,000 Jews the remnant that was left, went back to Israel. But what they found when they got there was utter devastation. Everything was destroyed. There wasn't much there at all. But King Cyrus said, I will provide what you need. I want you to rebuild the temple so that you can worship your God and I will have his blessing. <laughs> so the people began building the temple. They began to lay a foundation, but then they got oppression and they got resistance from the Samaritans that were from other nations that had been brought in and they were trying to keep them from building the temple and the book of Ezra talks about what happened chapter 4 verse 1 of Ezra says now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them hey let us help you Zerubbabel said no way we will build our own temple. You're not part of us. You're not part of the people of God. You have nothing in common with us. So then in verse 4 it says, The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. And they hired counselors against them to frustrate the council all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the people had begun to build a temple, but then they stopped because they were afraid, it says. They were afraid of the opposition. They were afraid of what was going on. And so the temple continued to lie desolate, destroyed. They quit. For 16 years they quit until God raised up this prophet, Haggai. Haggai only prophesied, only preached for 15 weeks, but... He was an amazing prophet because the people responded. They listened to him. So 
It says, In the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. We know exactly when that was. We know when Darius reigned. We know the dates. And so it was August 29th, 520 B.C. And God confronts the people and he says, This is the problem. Verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. You see, the people were afraid of what was going on, and what often happens when we're afraid is we begin to take care of our own needs. I better make sure I'm okay, and we begin to self-protect to make sure we're okay. So out of their fear, they're building their own houses. But they've let the temple remain a mess. The people were saying, it's not time. Hey, I've got too much to deal with. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with God. I'll give my life to God. I'll serve Him later. <laughs> but I've got too much of my own stuff. I, I've got to make sure my life is going okay. My family's doing okay. We're struggling financially. We're struggling economically. We're struggling relationally. And therefore, it's not time to do God's stuff. I've got to take care of mine. You see, fear often does that, doesn't it? It makes us, again, want to take care of our own things, focus on making sure our own needs are met. The trouble with that is that the time to serve God never comes, does it? We think, well, when I retire, or when I get a better job, or when I have more money, or when I get married, or when the kids are out of the house, or, you know, fill in the blank. We think then then I can serve God more. And God says, there's something wrong with that. That's a problem when you're always saying, it's not time yet. <laughs> because tomorrow never comes. Something always gets in the way. It's never, ever time. And so the result is what was happening in Israel. The people were living this kind of religious hypocrisy where they were you know, doing the outward religious things, but their lives were not centered on God. Their lives were about themselves. They were building their own houses, not God's. And so God speaks into their lives. And in the next few verses, 3 through 11, we hear the, what God confronts them with, what he talks to them about, a number of issues. First, in verses 3 and 4, he confronts their wrong priorities. Confronts their wrong priorities. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? The word for desolate is the idea of a desert where there's no life. It's Death Valley. <laughs> there's nothing there at all. And he's saying, that's what my house is like. The, the temple should be the center of life for the nation of Israel. It should be the place where... People are coming and worshiping God and their sacrifices and there's delight in Him and it's the center of what is going on in all of Israel. And he's saying, it lies desolate. Instead, you people are focusing on your own house. And he, he says that you're paneled houses. That word in the Old Testament for paneled has this picture of, it was mainly in the temple, in the palaces, etc. It was a picture of wealth, of exorbitance of making sure you are ultra-comfortable instead of 
serving God. I mean, God wants us to make sure our basic needs are taken care of. He provides for that. But the challenge is you are not serving God in the midst of that. Now, why was the temple so important? You know, this building we're in is not a temple. It's just, it's just a building where the church can meet. Why was the temple so important to God at this point? Well, see, for Israel in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God dwelt. It was the visible expression that God reigns on earth. So with no temple, there was no place to do sacrifices. There was no place to go worship God. There was no center there where people could look and see, yes, God is alive. He is the Lord of hosts. He reigns here. So God challenges them and says, you're investing in your own house, but what about mine? This is a good challenge for us today. Now, the temple of God today is not a building, right? We just studied the book of 1 Corinthians, and he makes very clear in there what the temple is today. What is it? It's us. It's the church and the individuals who have God living and dwelling in us. We are the visible expression of God's reign on earth. And so if we're not giving our lives to him and living for him, how will people know God reigns, that he's alive today? So it's a challenge for us to consider what are we investing in? Whose house are we building? For example, how are we investing our time? If someone were to really evaluate your life, could see into how you use your time, would they say you're building your own house, taking care of yourself? Or would they say you're, you're living for God's kingdom, for His temple, for His purposes? So you're loving God and others in how you use your time. Are you serving Him? Are you looking for ministry and ways to love other people well? It's worth asking the question, how are we investing not just our time, but how are we investing our money? Do we see everything we have money-wise, possessions-wise as God's, and so we, we want to invest it in what He's doing and not just in ourselves. I remember when Jeannie and I were a pretty young family. I was a young pastor, and we had a couple kids at the time, and we were just struggling from month to month financially. We were living on about $700 a month of support as we were doing a college ministry up in Moscow. And, and God began to speak to my heart. And he, he said, you know, your money is mine. And I kept going, yeah, but God, I got to take care of these kids and I don't have enough to give to your purposes. I, I need to take care of my needs. You know, when we get a little more, when... When our needs are really provided for well, then, then I can invest more in your kingdom. And he kept prodding me in my heart. And Jeannie and I talked and prayed about it. And we finally committed ourselves. We said, yeah, we don't see where it's going to come from, but God, we believe you're calling us to give a minimum of 10% of everything we get to your church and your purposes. We don't, there was no visible way we were going to survive. But we felt like God was calling us to do that. In the last nearly 30 years since that day, as we've maintained that commitment, God has more than blessed us. And he's always met our needs. You see, God wants us to build his house, not ours. (laughs) And to trust him 
Not live by fear, but live by trust in a God who loves us enough to take care of us. So he wants us to ask ourselves, how are we investing our time? How are we investing our money, our possessions? How are we investing in our relationships? Do we see relationships as a way to get our needs met? Or as a way to serve others and love others and care for them and minister to them? To die to self. Again, you could go on and on, but it's just an encouragement to us that God's speaking to us and asking us, whose house are you building? What are you investing in? So first of all, God confronts their wrong priorities. And then in the next couple of verses, verse 5 and 6, he exposes their dissatisfaction in life. He says, think about it. Consider your ways. Literally, it's set your heart on the road you're on. Set your heart on your ways. Look at the road you're on. Are you really fulfilled? Are you really satisfied with where your life is going? You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not even enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to put in a purse with holes in it. He, he's saying, think about your life. Think about your road you're on. Is this road really bringing satisfaction to your life? Is life really working well for you? Every month are you struggling and, and it seems like the money just slips away and you have to use your credit card to get by at the end of the month? The Israelites were using their credit cards to get by every month, I think. <laughs> He's saying the same thing to you and to me. He's saying, are you really satisfied in your life? So he exposes their dissatisfaction in life. And then... Thirdly, verse 7 and 8, he calls them to repentance. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, look at the path you're on. Same phrase. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. He calls them to repent. You see, in the end, God loves us too much to let us keep going the wrong way. So he calls us and says, look at the road you're on. Be willing to change to a different road. And there's three parts to what I see he's calling them to. Three parts of repentance. First is to consider your ways, to face your sin, to realize you're on the wrong road. <laughs> you've got to admit you're on the wrong road if you're going to change and get on the right road. You've got to face the fact you're not going the right way. I was with... Uh, my family, my brother's family, and I think a few others, and we were headed into a place in eastern Oregon. It's up on Steens Mountain where my family grew up camping a lot. I was leading the way. I'd been there many times, but it had been a number of years since I'd been there. But, you know, we're forging ahead, and I thought, got to a road, and I thought, yeah, this has to be the right road. About 20 minutes down the road, we should be at the, this great little campsite that our family loved to go. Well... About an hour and a half later, I finally was willing to admit that we were on the wrong road. <laughs> By then, the kids were car sick. Even the dog was car sick. It was a mess. And we found a map and we looked, and you know, I was only about a quarter mile off from the road. But I couldn't admit that I was on the wrong road until 
after an hour and a half. (laughs) That's what God is saying to the Israelites and to you and me today. Are you willing to say and admit that you're on the wrong road? That's where it begins. If you really want to find satisfaction in God and find life in Him, that's where it begins. That's repentance. It begins with saying, yeah, you know what? I am on the wrong road. Uh, Life's not working for me. And then secondly, repentance involves acting, moving. He says, hey, get up, go up in the mountain, start cutting some wood, bring it down, you know, take your saw and actually start moving. Repentance means moving. It means acting. It means moving in a new direction, getting on a different road and engaging your will to act. It's not enough to say, oh yeah, you know, I realize I haven't been loving my wife well. You know, so I'm, I'm going to do differently, but then never do it. Repentance means actually acting, moving ahead to make a change, to get on a new road and begin to make little choices in line with that new road, that new direction. And then the third part of repentance is he says that it may please me and I may be glorified. In other words, for repentance, you have to take on a new goal. You have to get on a road that's moving in a different direction that has a different goal, a different place to move. Our old goal maybe was to get my life taken care of, to deal with my own fears myself, to take care of life myself. And the new goal is to please God and make sure He's glorified. When we change goals and we decide, Lord, I want my life to please you. I want to glorify you with my life and I'm going to trust you to take care of me and my needs as I move with you. It's amazing how that frees you up. You can trust God now. You don't have to try to scramble to make sure you're getting enough for yourself and you don't have to grab and take. And in your marriage, you don't have to make sure things are 50-50, but you're able to give your life away and trust God with the rest. And know He will bless you and take care of you. Makes you free to die to yourself. You see, that's repentance. And God calls Israel to repentance. He calls us to repentance. He says, just admit you're on the wrong road. Begin to take little steps to move in a new direction and change the direction of your heart to a new goal. And then God goes on to say something very interesting in verses 9 through 11. What He says is, You guys are frustrated in your life. I did it. I did it. Listen to what he says. Verse 9 through 11. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. You're trying to gather for yourself. You're trying to get your life secure financially and economically. He said, I blow it away. I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Is there any part of life where the drought doesn't touch? Nothing. Now that sounds cruel. God, how could you be that way? I thought you loved us. Why would you bring a drought into our lives? 
It sounds cruel until you understand the incredible love of God. (laughs) You see, God loves us too much to let us be satisfied with anything less than himself. God loves us too much to let us be satisfied with anything less than himself. Therefore, he acts, he blows away, he brings drought into our lives so that nothing will satisfy us, so that eventually we will turn to him for life. Our lives are like a wheel, like a bicycle wheel. God needs to be the center of that wheel, and if he is, then the wheel flows smoothly. But if he's not, if we try to put anything else in that center, then the wheel wobbles and eventually breaks. There is no other choice, folks. Either he's the center or something else is. Either we're learning to let him be the center and let him determine life or we are wobbling and about to crash. God made us. He knows what we need. He created us for himself. I love that quote by Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Think about that for a minute. Don't you want a life at rest? Where you're finally alighted in the place where there's wholeness and fulfillment, completeness to your life, a sense of rightness to your life. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So God blows. God brings a drought. So Haggai brings some difficult words to the people of Israel. How do they respond? Well, actually, it's pretty amazing. (laughs) They listen. They respond to him. Haggai is one of those rare preachers that people actually listen to. It was amazing. (laughs) Listen to verse 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence or feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. A wonderful little word in Hebrew there. It says they obeyed, but it's really a word for listen. But it can be translated listen or obey because if you really hear from God, then you act, you obey, you respond. And so it says the people responded to this word from God and they worshipped. It says they feared the Lord. Before they were fearing the circumstances and the enemies around them, We can get so caught up in fearing what's going on in our culture and all that's going on with gay marriage, etc., etc. We can get so fearful of that and fearful of the economy. And if we do that, then the hub 
is not God, it's something else. But if we fear God, if we reverence Him and realize, Lord, You're in control and I will trust You with my life, then the hub's in the right place and things begin to work. And that's what the Israelites did. They feared Him. They put Him back in the center of their lives, on the throne of their lives. And God did great work in them and through them. Now, I could use many examples of people from this body that I think are wonderful examples that I've watched your lives where you've really sought in whatever situation you're in to put God in the center. But I just want to use one example because we are praying for him. We prayed for him this morning, Ray Mickelson, who's in Utah to get a new heart pump put in. Ray started coming to Cole a few years back. He was already involved in a prison ministry, but he came to me and said, you know, I'm retired. I'm new to this church how can I be used of God here? I want to use whatever I have for him. Well, we talked about it, but, you know, he just began listening to God and saying, God, how do you want to use me here? Well, he decided, you know what? We don't have a a ministry to the homeless here through the rescue mission. And they have a slot that's open once a month to lead a service and love those guys down there. So can I start that? So with the encouragement of the elders, he got a group together of leaders and now for several years they've been going down once a month and ministering at the rescue mission. Ray plugged into the Saturday evening prayer service and became one of the leaders there and really it's provided a lot of encouragement and strength and leadership to that ministry. He's been a growth group leader. He came to me and said, you know, I've got an idea. My family, some are following God, some aren't, but I just want to be encouraged. What do you think about if I regularly, once a month, send scripture, think about each family member, pray for them, and send a scripture to encourage them. And I said, that's a great idea. He's now been doing that for years. In the midst of all this, Ray came to me and he said, you know what, you're a pastor. Pastors don't get much encouragement or accountability. Can I meet with you once a month? And we'll share our lives together and we'll pray together. We've been doing that for the last few years. I'll tell you, that's been an incredible encouragement to me. Ray's nothing special. He's just a guy that said, Lord, I want you the center of the hub. I want, I want you to run my life, and I want to invest what I am and what I have in your kingdom. That's what Israel began to do as they responded to Haggai. And how did God respond? I love what I just read because it says, the message came to them through Haggai. I am with you, says the Lord. Life's been hard, I get it. Life's still hard. Things hadn't changed a lot for them. But God comes and says, my presence is with you. I am with you. I'm on your side. You're not alone in this. And then it says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and all the people. Not only did he encourage them with his presence, but he said, I will empower you. And he stirred up their spirits. Even though they didn't have a lot of resources, they didn't have a lot there, yet God empowered them. You see, as soon as we begin to step out and say, God, I want you to be the center and begin to walk in his way and change the goals of our lives, of our hearts, God steps in with his encouragement, his presence, and his power to begin living his life through us. 
He jumps in with both feet. Now, God probably doesn't have feet, okay? But he jumps in to help immediately and to empower them. I love that. When we turn from the road we're on and start walking in his way and learn to begin to please him and want to glorify him with our lives, he's so anxious to help us on that path. So really the story, the question of this first chapter of Haggai is this. Whose house are you building? Whose house am I building? Mine or God's? God's speaking to us today, folks. And he's saying, will you make me the center? Will you give me your heart and your soul? Will you live for me from this day forward? Is it time? Don't put it off. (laughs) It's never going to be time if you say, well, it's not time yet. No, today's the day. Now is the time. And when you step out, like Israel, you'll find that God is no longer frustrating you, blowing it all away. But in fact, he's stepping in to give you his encouragement and his life and his power as you walk that new road in his will. Let's pray. Lord, it's amazing that this little book of 2,500 years ago is so relevant to us right where we sit today. We do confess that so much of what we are and we're investing in it has to do with us and not with you and your kingdom. So, Lord, we lay ourselves at your feet. And I pray for each of us here that we might truly repent of the ways in which we've gone our own way and been on our own road, kept you from the center of our lives. Help us to begin to take those little steps to move on a different road and to change the goal and the direction of our hearts that we might please and glorify you, that we might build your house and not our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.